0: Now I can sort of say it with a straight face. At the time, you have to imagine, this was a very rude awakening for me. Like, I I had this moment of thinking, wait, wait, I say I'm a social change leader or a social entrepreneur, but I somehow think that everyone else needs to change except me.
1: Welcome to the Winsome Conviction Podcast. My name is Tim Yohoff. I'm the co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project and a communication professor here at Biola University, and we are so glad that you decided to join us again. My co-host is Dr. Rick Langer. Hi, Rick.
2: Hi, Tim, and uh, I'm a professor here at Biola as well and work with Tim directing the Winston Conviction Project. I'm a biblical studies and theology prof, and I'm also the director of our Office of Faith and Learning. And uh, we're really excited about uh, our, our guest for today. One of the things that we, we've often done on our podcast here is have a kind of report from the front, stories of people who are doing interesting things. Things with a particular topic,
1: and we've got a great guest today who had a crazy idea of bringing together people from different perspectives to come together and have uh, some fairly intense conversations. When we heard about this, we were thoroughly encouraged. We've gotten a chance to meet. Our podcast guest, we're very impressed by him, and we know that you will be as well. So, Rick, why don't you do the honors of introducing Simon?
2: All right. So, our guest is Simon Greer, and uh, he's known as a uh, social entrepreneur who's spent a, a lot of the last 30 years kind of on the front lines of dealing with contentious social change struggles and issues that have come up. He's been described as a, a serial entrepreneur. I'm, I believe that's not a felony, so that's good. <laughs> um, and particularly working in the nonprofit world, uh, in a particular aptitude he has, it seems, for reinvigorating organizations with noble missions but failing effectiveness. So he's done, uh, I was intrigued looking at some of your career history here, uh Simon, but the interesting oh, no. thing, yeah. <laughs> I, I won't dive into all of that, but your most recent project <laughs> was the one that really captured our attention and made us uh really want to talk about. It. So we'd love to welcome you to the podcast here, Simon. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Good to be with you both. And I would love to have you begin by just telling us a little bit about this, uh, this project, the Bridging the Gap project that you did with uh, some students from a very progressive university and a far more conservative university. So tell us just a little bit about how that project came about and what the experience of that was like for you. I guess the question is, how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> so
0: yeah. the, the origins of the project go back, I don't know, decades, really. Um, Because the project, in a lot of ways, was born out of the years I spent, as you said in the intro, on the front lines of some of the most combative social, economic, political issues facing our country. And so um, it would be unfair to just say, like, I woke up one day and I thought, oh, we should try to bridge differences. Why don't we (laughs) see what happens there? Um, You know, the truth is that uh, I was very good friends with a guy um, who worked for President Obama. And I actually... Had breakfast with him at the White House uh, the well, day after the re-election. So 2012, that? President Obama gets re-elected, and I'm I'm there at the White House mess, as they call the, the dining quarters in the White House, um, having breakfast with my friend. And he we were sort of talking about the the moment that, like, okay, this is not going to be a one-term president, it's a two-term president. And the hopefulness that, like, maybe the contentiousness would fade a little. Mm. Like, okay, you got reelected, right? Now we do what you want, right? Isn't that the way it goes?
1: <laughs>
0: Second term, it's like, okay, you're 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 the boss. You proved it. You won twice. And um, whether you like him or not, that was kind of what we thought. That's kind of what we thought the pattern would be. And within months of that, how completely mistaken we were became clear hmm. and i started asking myself like what is going on here that's so much deeper than an election right that the the polarization then so that's almost a decade ago
2: mm. but the yeah.
0: polarization then was severe right now we would say wow that was nothing that was like little league baseball this we're in the big league yeah that, polarization that was now. back in the good old days Right. That was, we could still talk to each other then. Um, but I, what struck me then, and I guess it's what animates, and then I'll jump to the more direct answer to your question. Um, what animates my work is that at that moment I had one of those kind of epiphanies of, uh, I don't think it's a political crisis. I think it's a spiritual crisis. Mm. And because of that, it sent me on a journey over the, the last almost decade, um, to try to understand what was at the root of how we've come to see the people we share this piece of land with as so much the other. And what does it say about who we are? Like, who am I as myself and my group that I'm so invested in you being not my group and you being the irredeemable other in my story? And, um, I spent a number of years, uh, in this journey, I spent a number of years just immersing myself among people. So I, it may, it may not be clear, but from my intro and in the story about the Obama White House, I, I've spent most of my career, let's say, on the progressive side of things. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, that's where I, that's where I learned how change happens and doesn't happen. It's where I cut my teeth as a community organizer. That's my background, and I, I never like to sort of shy away from just saying that's the truth. I think <laughs> what I did over the last decade is I um i decided in this moment of epiphany that i wanted to immerse myself among the people that my team the progressive team had had demonized and made the other <laughs> and so from about 2013 14 yeah that's right until uh well into you know recent years i i set out originally in in 2013 i set out set out in 2013 i wanted to I wanted to spend time with the two groups of people who I thought the progressive team demonized. And so Mm -hmm. in my mind, that was corporate leaders and the white working class. And so I just did everything I could to spend as much time as possible hanging around and working with and sitting alongside and learning from those two groups of people. And, you know, I, I figured if I did that, like I'd obviously learn something right about them. So that would be good. But I learned most profoundly, I learned something about myself and about the state of our country. And uh, that is what directly led me into this project you referenced, which I'm happy to to say more about now, if that's useful or if you, you oh, want can to.
1: I, Simon, can I ask one quick question uh, before you get there? I, I found it interesting that you were wondering if the problem was political, but then you kind of came to the idea that it was spiritual. Could you just unpack right. that phraseology for us? Like what, what do you mean by spiritual and how is that different from political?
0: Yeah. Well, I think I'd spent a lot of my career on political strategy. How do we win this election? How do we win this campaign? How do we get this entity, corporate or government, to do something different than what it's doing? And so I thought a lot about our world in political factions, political groupings, political strategies. Part of the epiphany, I guess, was, you know, and it's like, now I can sort of say it with a straight face. At the time, you have to imagine, this was a very rude awakening for me. Mm. Like, I, I had this moment <laughs> of thinking, wait, wait, I say I'm a social change leader or a social entrepreneur, but I somehow think that everyone else needs to change except me. <laughs> like, how, how did that happen to me? How did I ha- end up with such hubris that I thought, like, well, I'm for social change. It means all of you need to be different and do more yeah. of what I think. And then... Won't the world be a better place?
2: Wow. What, and, a, what a great insight that is. Difficult, but great insight. Yeah. Yeah. Let's call it a rupture more than an <laughs> insight. <but I> think. <laughs> um, because it
0: cut to the core, you know, the the question was fundamentally sort of the question it begged for me was, am I sure that I fully understand the complexity of all the problems we face and I am the holder of the solutions? Mm. Or do I know that there's just a lot of stuff I can't see? I don't I don't see the whole picture ever. And I would only be enhanced if I could spend time with people who see it differently, not diminished, not threatened, not unsafe, not scared, but like actually enhanced that the, you know, in the Jewish tradition, in my tradition, they talk about arguments that are for like the sake of self and arguments that are for the sake of heaven. Hmm. And um, I think a lot of how we do our politics is arguments for the sake of ourselves. That's how I operated. And This deeper, like, argument for the sake of heaven is really to illuminate, right, this whole thing, right, to try to understand how this whole thing is put together and where we're headed together, and so I think that was, you know, uh, that's the spiritual dimension to it, is that I had to come to face that uh, the story I had constructed about me and my team and how right we are, um, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know what your spiritual practices are, but... I remember years into meditating when and doing yoga, where uh, a teacher said to me, "You know, it's possible that all this idea of overcoming ego and all that—that that you're really just doubling down on it for your practice." <laughs> I want to be it's the like, world's best meditator. I'm, yeah. When when are you going to make Ashtanga yoga uh, an Olympic sport? i <laughs> I can do a backbend, right? and it's like, oh no, oh no. I've been doing this whole thing for uh, it's not for the resume. I don't think that's fair to say, but there's a little bit too much of me and myself mm. in this. And a little of this, the spirit of service, um, and the spirit of humility and curiosity and, and love, frankly. Um, so, so I think that, you know, yeah, sorry.
1: Oh no, no, no I'm sorry. I, you know, when, when no, you fr- one when, phrase you said that that just stuck with me is you asked the question, where are we headed together? And I don't mm-hmm. think we're doing that much anymore as Americans. I don't think we're like, hey, we're, this is our country and we're all moving and we better find a way that all of us can live with. I think we are so divided today that I don't think in terms of other groups. I'm thinking in terms of what is best for my group and how I can navigate that situation. That togetherness idea would change how we viewed a lot of our collective problems, don't you think?
0: Oh my gosh! I mean, this this is like, yeah, you're you're speaking my language here. So, here I may let me say a couple things about this. So, in the in the immediately in the complexity of the, the the my own tradition where I mentioned arguments for the sake of heaven, you know what you can see quickly is that partly um, it's rabbis having these debates. And what do the rabbis have in common? Their tradition. They they all think they're Jewish and they're arguing. You know. Is this what the law says? Is this what the that Hebrew Bible story teaches, or is it that other thing? And that it's it's they're not disputing a shared tradition; they're trying to illuminate. They're on the
2: same boat together, but they they they
0: believe that fundamentally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what it struck me, you know, in that moment of like I want to be part of the arguments for the sake of heaven was, oh wait, I have to believe I have a tradition with you that is common. And if, if you think America was actually put on this planet um, as an exceptional gift to the world because we are doing something unique and someone else thinks it is fatally flawed by its original sin of slavery, well, do we have a tradition enough in common mm-hmm. that we could solve problems together? Maybe, maybe not. And that's, I think, so that's where we are. And so what I see happening in our politics today is when we think we're arguing about climate change, right? Or we think we're arguing about racial justice. So, you know, that we're not, that's not what we're doing. (laughs) If we were trying to argue about what to do about those problems, I think we'd have a lot of solutions. But what we're doing is we're arguing about whether my tradition can live here. So Mm, if I believe in the primacy of my theology and I believe in the primacy of my science, that's the fight we're now having about climate change. Can my theological tradition be safe and sacred here? Can my science be safe and sacred here? And so I'm not actually arguing with you about is it getting warmer and is that dangerous and what should we do and what would you compromise to solve? No, I'm fighting about the existential question of whether I can belong and I'm for law and order and you're for racial justice and we're not actually fighting about how do you make policing practices better. That's a a technical problem. We can solve that, but we're arguing about like, is this place going to be safe for me? Is it going to be safe for me? And is there a way that it can be safe for each of us with the very different ways we understand how this moment came to be? And I don't think you can solve the pressing problems if it's actually, I often say it this way, these issues are no longer uh, issues to be solved by uh, by, and with my fellow Americans. They are the battlefield on which I seek to vanquish my mortal enemies.
2: Yeah. Wow. Right? Yeah. And as
0: long as that's what we're doing, then, you know, here you You get what you ask for. Here we are.
1: Boy, that makes me think of Robert Bella's Habits of the Heart, where he said Uh America has lost the concept of the front porch. And that has always stayed with me. You know, you're sitting on the front porch with other neighbors looking at your street, your community, and there's a commonness. And I I love what you're saying that uh, that is what we've lost today is... This is the American struggle. This is our struggle. And, and we're so tribal now that it's, no, my tribe is what I care about. I don't care about you. I want, I want to have my agenda. It might be theologically motivated, but that has become what is primary, not this idea of, in my tradition, it's neighbor love. I mean, the second great commandment, my goodness, is love your neighbor as yourself. And I think that's kind of what we've lost and so that's why we have the Winsome conviction project Simon is I think we're speaking the same language. So let's pivot just a little bit well, to this Oh I go do, ahead. Yes. I
0: just got to push this one step further because I think this is where it's so complicated. When you got to imagine if if one of you was white and male and Protestant and financially well off and one of you was black and female and financially not so well off and I said, I, I remember a time in our country when you could sit together as neighbors on the front porch and you went to church together on Sunday and you knew the people down the street and your kids could go play outside and pop in on the neighbor's house and you know, have lemonade together. And I'm not against any other people. I'm not against the new people in the neighborhood. I'm not against the new people who come to our country. But I just want to know that our family... our our religious tradition and our nation are safe and sacred. One of you would say, yeah, amen. That's what I want. And the other one would say, oh, that was the time when my parents had to go to the separate water fountain. And so Mm. it it is fundamentally like, can, can we make both can we honor both those truths and build the thing we all want, which I think is for our families, our traditions, and our country to thrive. But you know, in truth and reconciliation, they often write the first. The first thing is truth, right? <laughs> and if you won't acknowledge in your story about what the neighborhood used to be, right? And I won't acknowledge the truth. You know, if I won't acknowledge the truth in how you remember that moment of the neighborhood, and you won't acknowledge the truth in the, how I remember that moment of the neighborhood, it's hard for us to reconcile. And I think that is. It's very much where we're stuck. I hope that made sense.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and it's well. So I'd love to dive into this more, but we've actually I lost the thread of the original okay. uh, story of, of the uh, interesting thing you did to put it into action, uh, yeah. for example, with the students at, at Oberlin and Spring Harbor. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you kind of acted on this in that context. I appreciate yeah. the backstory actually is great sure. for helping us understand the kind of the existential moment that led to this. Yeah. Great. So I,
0: I actually had no, I have no background in higher education and I didn't do terribly well in school. So I never thought I would do much in higher ed. That wasn't kind of my thing. Um, I was actively working on these crossing lines of differences kind of experiments. And um, we, we organized a group from a synagogue in New York City, more liberal, this is 2016, 2017, I guess, more liberal, uh, urban, Jewish. We teamed up with a union from Michigan, a group that was more conservative, more rural, more Christian. Um, and we brought them together. And so the group from New York came and stayed in the homes of the Michigan folks for a few days. And then a couple months later, they reciprocated and the Michigan folks came to New York. And um, we we spent time walking in each other's shoes and, you know, breaking bread together and getting to know each other and and talking about the hard issues. And one of the participants in the group said, you know, that he he was a host, actually. And he said, Uh, from the New York group that he um, had was an Oberlin alumni uh, and that his daughters were at Oberlin. And had I ever thought about doing this kind of an exchange on college campus? And Hmm. then, um, and I said, I hadn't thought about it, but I was, I was kind of curious and interested. And then another participant from Michigan said that he actually had close friends who were connected to spring Arbor university, which is a free Methodist evangelical school in, in, uh, in just outside of Jackson, Michigan. Um, and so I thought, well, we've got to, you know, I sort of follow my nose on these things. And so we had an introduction to Oberlin and an introduction to Spring Arbor. And I went out there and visited with both schools and said, you know, could we could we pilot this thing, which basically would we would take over a J term. Each school, it turned out, had a winter term, so a January term. And this is about 18 months ago now that we did it. Um, and we said we'd give it a shot. And what we designed was a program that uh, was built in three parts. The first part uh, we called the skills building part. So, And I can say more about that if you want. But we basically teach listening skills, storytelling skills, and feedback skills. That was part one. They learned the skills. Then part two is called the encounter. So at that point, we all came together at Spring Arbor. We lived in a dorm there together for that that second week. and in that time, that was really time for them to get to know each other better, mm. to talk about the hard issues, share thoughts about values and worldview and uh, go go deeper on some of those issues and also experience life at Spring Arbor. So Tuesday nights at Spring Arbor, they have a, a student-led group called, it's called Vertical. It's like a student-led Bible study. And I think it's pretty safe to say that on Tuesday nights at Oberlin, they don't have Bible studies. <laughs> um, but we all went, right? So the Oberlin students, they were, we were there, were part of the community. So we went to Bible study, right? So that week two was that encounter, and then the final week of the program is called the pul- public policy uh, multi-stakeholder approach. And so we we worked, criminal justice was the issue we focused on. But what we do is we take the skills from the first week, the practice of encountering the other, in the second week, and we apply it to a policy issue. And so in in week three, they met with a range of stakeholders from criminal justice system, whether it was the head of the Department of Corrections, or corrections officers, or the Corrections Officers Union, or people who are currently incarcerated, or formerly incarcerated, or advocacy groups, families of formerly incarcerated. And then in small teams, in small teams with students from each school, um, they had to create a policy blueprint that reflected their potential political disagreements, uh, their understanding of what the multiple stakeholder viewpoints were. So some some policy solution that would meet all those needs. Um, and I, I've heard about programs that do the skills building and some that do the dialogue and the encounter. And certainly there's policy programs that do a multi-stakeholder approach. I think there was something in putting those three pieces together oh. in the immersive, intensive three-week living together experience that was pretty, it was different than what any of those students had encountered. Um, and it, it really had a lasting effect.
1: Well, what a great uh, outline for, the, for our next segment. I would love to explore each one of those with you. But uh, very, I, I read in an interview before this happened, actually uh, it occurred bringing together these students. You said in the interview from the beginning there was a leap of faith that this was going to work <laughs> like what were your reservations heading into this that of what could go wrong or are we crazy for trying to do this what what was your mindset heading into it
0: yeah um well i would say the on the motivating side was that i had gotten into social change work decades ago because of a faith in people mm. i think that would be my most fundamental belief is that everyday people can make history um and want to, that each, each of us wants to do more than just like take care of our own little life and our own little selves. We want to actually connect to something bigger and make a mark if we can. Like I believe that about people if they're given the chance. Most people just don't think there's an invitation to do that. Um, so I think that was what motivated me to try. I think the reason it was a leap was I just heard it was terrible on college campuses. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I heard, you know, that there's no room for dialogue and no people you can't voice an opinion that's unpopular. Yeah. You know, actually in the first group, I asked like how well would I do on if I was a professor here and one of the students said, Oh, you'd get fired. Oh. I was like, why would I get fired? I said, well, cause you know, they would say you're a racist. I was like, well, why, what, what did I do? And I said, well, there was a racially insensitive remark made in one of the classes, and you didn't reprimand the student. Mm, you yeah. invited the group into a deeper conversation. And I was like, uh, right. <laughs> that's what I would still do again. And they're like, yeah, but that's not that's not good enough here. Mm, so yeah. I, had, I had heard stories like that, and they aren't just like fairy tales. That is what it is like on a lot of campuses. So I think I was unsure, why is it that way on campus? Is that what students really want? And so am I walking into you know, an impossible situation culturally? So that was a, a big part of the leap. And then, um, you know, I haven't been in college campus in a long time. I had never spent time on an evangelical campus. So why would they listen to me? You know, mm-hmm. Why are they going to talk to me? Um, uh, so I think there were a lot of reasons <laughs> that I was kind <laughs> of skeptical. Um, and I guess maybe, honestly, I was also, this whole effort, has really just been like put one foot in front of the other. Like I don't have a master strategic plan. I don't know exactly what success will look like. All the things that I was trained to do, I, it's not that I've thrown them out. I just keep trusting my gut and saying, all right, well, there seems to be uh, energy there. There seems to be love there. There seems to be light there. Let me move toward that, and we'll see what happens. And so I didn't know, when I came to teach these students, if they would be like, oh, yeah. We learned that, you know, in freshman orientation, that's boring. Or, Mm. well, actually, Simon, that doesn't make any sense. Like, here's our situation, (laughs) and you're totally disconnected. So I just didn't know. You know, I think that's the truth.
1: Well, we are so glad you pushed through it. Uh, so, Simon, and we'd love to come back and talk about these skills that you taught. That's intriguing to us. And then also, this is immersive experience, I think, is what's often kind of lacking in some ways. So, uh, thank you so much for listening to the Winsome Conviction podcast. We're here to resource you. So, please check out our website, winsomeconviction.com. And we've been having a great conversation that will continue in our next podcast.
2: If you'd like to subscribe, we'd encourage you to uh, just go to Apple Podcasts or uh, Spotify or wherever it is that you get your podcasts and uh, just become a regular listener. Thanks so much for joining us.